So if I had to break my theology, my spirituality, my core understanding of the religious life down to one word, it would be this. Presence. Presence is the sense, the ultimate sense that I make of what the spiritual life is all about. Now, spirits, spirituality, to understand it as presence is to think about it in two distinct ways, but they're very much related and they feed each other. The first way is this, those moments of absolute clarity, insight. Abraham Maslow called them peak experiences. Those moments where we feel absolutely connected, moments perhaps of grace, moments that are just given to us, saying here, you are not alone. Moments that are saying, you are not on your own in this life. Somehow, some way, we are connected. Moments that come very close to what the Greeks were talking about with their word ecstasy. Nothing to do with a drug or anything like that, but ecstasy, ecstasis. To stand outside of one's normal states of being and get a different, deeper perspective upon our lives. A lot of you have seen The Matrix, is that right? All right, woo! Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to share with you what I call my Matrix Borders Books and Music moments. It was a moment of ecstasy. And I swear, I had been sober for many years by the time this happened to me. I was standing in the checkout line in Chestnut Hill with the Borders Books and Music there, close to where I live. And all of a sudden, you know that scene in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves' Neo has really mastered The Matrix? He can really operate within it in the way that he wants to. And he almost is faster than speeding bullets. And the camera pans around from his perspective over to the perspective of the speeding bullet. And you get a sense that he is in more than one place at a time. If you know that scene, you know what I'm talking about. Well, that was exactly what happened to me somehow in the middle of the day in this Borders Books and Music. I was standing online just waiting for my book to be rung up. And I was going to take it, my purchase, and go home. And all of a sudden, it was as if I had switched places with the young woman who was checking me out. It literally was as if she and I had switched perspectives. And I saw myself from outside myself and saw the world almost as if she was seeing it. The meaning of that experience of presence that I take away with me was this. It's something I knew but really experiencing it brought it home on a deeper level. Someone else's perspective is just as valuable, just as real, and just as amazing as my own. And through that mystical experience that I don't quite and probably never will understand, I had this deep sense that all of us, and in the life between all of us, there exists something real and deep and nourishing. Now, Wellspring, some of the ways that we talk about God is that we can experience God without being able to define it. And so that experience is good enough for me. And it was as much as a gift as I needed. But the experience of presence just as something we are offered is not quite enough. Because I don't think we can experience presence in a true way without a deeper change in our lives, without understanding that we're not just gifted presence with a capital P. We are called to become a deeper and truer presence to each other in our lives. This is one of the reasons why spiritual practice is one of our core values in this community. 
So we stay connected to our source and ourselves, and we practice that kind of presence so our consciousness is expanding. We go from being perhaps narrow and shut out and shut in and shut up within ourselves and extending ourselves outward towards life. This kind of presence is not a content we can ever possess. And to think of it as a dogma that we can just hand off is missing the point. Rather than a content we possess, rather is a kind of big-hearted, big-minded character to which all of us are invited to grow towards. This experience of presence, of becoming a bigger presence, a deeper presence, invites us into relationship with life in so many different forms and takes us perhaps of feeling apart, apart from, and makes us feel so deeply apart of. And you see I'm wearing a little blue bracelet this morning. It's got two words on it. Just yesterday, and on Friday, and I know some of you were there, we had a partially silent retreat at Wellsprings, a fall retreat called Hearing What Is There. Two words on this bracelet. Very simple. Hear, hear. H-E-A-R, H-E-R-E. I think this is the key element in any spiritual life. Can we hear what is here? Right now, in this very moment. There's a beautiful old gospel song that when Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers sing it just absolutely moves me to tears. It's incredible. It's called Were You There? Do any of you know Were You There? It's an old gospel song. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? It is a beautiful, wonderful song. But too often, religions want to ask a question that looks in that direction. Were you there? As in, were you there in the past when the most important aspect of religious life happened? Or, where will you be in the future? I don't know if you've ever been approached by people. I've had people approach me who are friends. I don't agree with them. But, you know, they just want to ask me, where are you going to be? Where's your soul going to be on Judgment Day? Do you know that you will be saved? And, of course, I respond, well, I'm from a universalist tradition, so, yeah, I think we all go there eventually, whatever the it is. But too often those religious questions miss the point. Were you there when the most important thing happened? Where will you be when time runs out? most important question, especially the most religiously mature version of that, especially for religious progressives, is not were you there and not where will you be, but are we here? Are you here? Are we here right now? Because we know presence, capital P, presence, most formatively, most importantly, most wonderfully in our life when we know it in the present tense. Not past tense, not long ago and far away. Not nostalgia for some time that may have existed or probably only exists in its most pristine form in our minds as we would like to imagine it. Alan Lightman, in a wonderful little book called Einstein's Dreams, I can't recommend enough, he writes, a life in the past cannot be shared with the present. Each person who gets stuck in time gets stuck alone. And religious life is not future conditional then, not if then, not some imagined utopia of life removed, shorn of all of its problems, that at that point when we get there, it'll be okay. Because there will be, in many ways, a lot like here. 
It has so many different teachings, so many different ways of knowing it. The power of now, eternity in the palm of our hand, as the poet Blake talked about it. Living simply one day at a time. Seek as if we can live this day well. Whatever we consider the future to be, whatever we consider the future beyond which there is no future, that other realm, that unknown realm toward which we all go. We know that whatever we might think about it, the best preparation for fullness of being then is to live with fullness of being now. And in this way, we can say, yes, we are here. I lived nearly two decades of my life beset by a nagging and at sometimes incredibly acute and very painful, very stressful, at times very frustrating, very angry sense of anxiety, of wanting to be released from the moment, because the moment seemed too much to bear. But that was asking the wrong question, I realized. It is not about being released from the moment in the spiritual life. It is about seeking release to go into the moment. Not from it, but into it. The Bible says, and I love this, love casts out fear. I think that love casts out fear. We know it when it happens because then we experience presence. That ability to say we are here. A great teacher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, in a time of stress and great pain, great sorrow in his life, even anger over where his life had taken him, and actually in some ways really akin to this week before Halloween, he did something that actually wasn't all that uncommon in his life, especially people like himself who were big R romantics, not candy hearts and flowers romantic, but idealism, poetry kind of romantic. It was right after the death of his beloved first wife, Ellen. And he would go to her graveside day after day after day. And he would open her coffin. Because he wanted to commune somehow with her spirit, thinking that what had been passed held the secret to what was going to come. Until one day, there, before her open coffin, he had the revelation that really informs so much of the rest of his teaching and his preaching and what he has handed us. He said then what he really sought no longer was the God of the past but what he called the God of the living. The presence in the present tense. The presence that knows itself, not through was or will be, but through that simple, most elemental verb, is. He wanted to be a present tense being. This yearning for real presence is so key in our lives. It is ancient but it's also ancient in our personal histories as well. <clears throat> you can hear it in lullabies all through the night, talking about presents that will be with the child all through the night, because nighttime is scary. You ever read or really sing the words and know they're talking about Rockabye Baby? Oof, that is brutal stuff. Nighttime is not the right time in a lot of ways. It's scary. The world can be a dangerous place. Tough and rough stuff will happen to us. There will be stress. There will be anger. There will be pain. I think for me, the first place where I really got a sense of presence was in this. Show that slide. Good night, moon. Before I knew English in any recognizable sense, I would say good night to the red bayoon. Bayoon. That ritual of saying good nights goodbye to the objects in one's presence and in one's being. 
is a way of reaching out for some deeper stability, even as we have to let go of the day. <clears throat> but what about for those of us who are adults? Who reads us bedtime stories? Maybe we pray a little bit, maybe we meditate, try to center ourselves, but bedtime stories are wonderful. Maybe here's one for you. I think about Wendell Berry, great poet, great naturalist. He says when he wakes in the middle of the night for fear, for stress, of what his life is becoming and of what his children's lives are becoming, and he is beset by all the problems of the world, he takes himself out to the water where he says the great heron feeds. And he says, I come into the presence of the peace of the wild things who do not tax their lives with forethoughts of grief. I come into the presence of the still water and for a time, I rest in the grace of this world, and I am free. This is a good bedtime story. It is capital P, presence. See, because nothing injures our ability to experience real presence in this life, like anger or stress or pain. This past week, when I felt my little flu starting to come upon me, I raced home as quickly as I could to get into bed, but I had to stop at the supermarket to get as many canned things, as much soup as I could get. And in front of me, on the line, checking out with their food for the week, was a family. And so I hope this doesn't hit close to home for any of you, but wow. <laughs> dad was on the cell phone. Mom was scrambling to pay. No help from Dad. Elder sister... Come on, come on, come on, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Getting nothing from either parents. And then whack, elbow comes out, shoots right into the solar plexus of baby brother. You can see in their stress, they were all set apart and against each other. They were not being there. They were not hearing there. They were trying to be elsewhere, and because of that, they were not together. It's almost like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, I know I have, being in a cocktail party, and maybe you're the person who's got one eye on the person you're talking to, but also one eye on the door. Or maybe someone's talking to you, and you get a sense that they're talking to you with one eye and sort of looking behind you or beyond you or past you at the same time. It's almost like this is a little bit of evolutionary anxiety. Am I going to be cool enough to talk to the next person who comes in the room? Am I going to be cool enough to succeed beyond this conversation to talk to the next person? Well, this, of course, is a way of rendering ourselves or the other person invisible. That somehow their presence really doesn't matter because they are only good to us, only as good to us as the next step we can take beyond them is. Last week I talked about C.S. Lewis's wonderful, fanciful little book called The Great Divorce. And in it he talks about his very fantastical, not all realistic, but still very telling bus tour through heaven and hell one day that he takes from the English countryside. And he says the difference really between heaven and hell is that in hell there are ghosts, in heaven there are spirits, and both at the deepest level choose to be there. Ghosts are this. They are trapped. They do not experience any presence. They live only in the past or only in future hope of relief. They are worried. They are harried. They alone. But the spirits are free in a glorious, present, tense presence, free to love without anxiety or worry or reprisal. 
I think that congregational life, what we are gathered here to do together, is really at the deepest level about that choice. Do we wish to be spirits or do we wish to be ghosts? Some years ago, I heard a Catholic priest talking at the radio, and this was right at the very apex of the sex scandals in the church. And he didn't try to cover anything up. And he didn't try to blame the gays. He didn't try to blame the hierarchy. He said, this is a problem in the priesthood. This is a problem with the people to whom I am called to minister with. This is a sickness that goes right to the heart of who we are. Is because we have stopped caring for people. And he said, truly, truly, care more about ourselves and more about protecting our ministry rather than being with others. He says the only way this will correct itself is if those who are called to the priesthood follow three things. And it's true of any sort of leadership. He said all leaders must be available, accountable, and vulnerable. I think in any part of community life, we must always seek to be available, accountable, and vulnerable. Available? We promise we will be around. Accountable? We promise we will be trustworthy and vulnerable, perhaps the most hard thing for those of us who are adults. We promise that we will not armor our hearts against each other. Availability, accountability, and vulnerability. If we leave, live out from these things, we can fulfill the promise of real presence with each other. There's a great book that came out a couple years ago called Simply Here If You Need Me. Here If You Need Me. It's by a woman who's a UU minister, and she's got a very specific kind of ministry. She is the chaplain to the wilderness wardens, the sort of state troopers in the state of Maine. Now, she started down the path of her ministry when her life fell apart. Her husband had survived serving in wartime, and he had come back and was training to be a state trooper in Maine and was hit out on the highway by a car as it was passing and died. All of a sudden, bam, the bottom just dropped out of her life and the life of her four kids. And she really had to focus on what it was that she believed. This call to focus on what it was that she really would rest her heart upon led her to ministry and to what she calls the God that she serves with her full heart and her full being and her full mind, which is the presence of love. Kate Braestrup, having serving now in her ministry as the chaplain to these people who literally what they do is they go out and they search for the lost. Not in a spiritual sense, they search for the literally lost. They search for the campers who go out and lose their way or lose their map. They go out and they search for those who say they want to get lost and then tenaciously try to fight their way back home, but can't. And very often this ministry is a losing battle. And so she goes to minister to those troopers who have to find the bodies, and she goes to minister to the families who are left behind when the remains have been found. She tells a story in Here If You Need Me about one man, a man named Jean-Pierre who literally the bottom dropped out on his life. He was ice fishing and the ice collapsed and he drowned. She and the trooper found the body and she knew that she would have to make 
the call upon the family. She writes this, Mrs. Levesque will put me to use as a witness, as a crutch, as Kleenex, as a proxy for Jean-Pierre. A temporary substitute for all the neighbors, church folks, friends, and family members who will soon come bursting through her door to share her grief. I am a transitional love object. What a strange privilege it is to be so used by other people. And the trooper with whom she is sharing this insight says, yes, it's like you are standing right there on the hinge of someone's life, you know? Right there on the hinge from which it swings, with the whole world swings around, and that widow or that mother or that dad's life is suddenly completely different, permanently altered. And here, if you need me, we get a true sense of what the word companion really means. Companion is not a noun, it's actually a verb. Companion, if you break it down, it means one with whom we break bread. One with whom we sit in some of the most intimate ways in this life and share the crust of our being together. In our 2.0 class, our Listening to Our Lives, we do a loving-kindness meditation. And some of the final words in that loving-kindness meditation are these, which is that we would seek to see. We would seek to look and to recognize, to turn towards, not turn away, that we are choosing and the key word in what she says, to be a witness rather than to be indifferent. Choosing to be a witness to another person's presence and to be a presence to another person's pain. At some point, we're all going to be in the seats of being the one who is in pain. We have already. It's like the kids' game shoots and ladders. Sometimes there are those ladders, and we climb up and up and up, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But probably just as equally, there are those moments when we land on the chutes, and life does fall out, and the hinge drops open. In those moments, when we are really present to and with each other, we can see all the artifice stripped away. We can see that what matters most as we share with each other, is not a dogma, not a teaching, not a content, not even something that can be told. It is only something that can be shared. We know, and most importantly, what matters in this life is our devotion that shows itself in its presence and in our presence with each other. So this past week, I told you I was sick. I saw E.T. three times on television. Now, somewhere, my mom, who left this life quite a number of years ago, in whatever form she is, she is uh, not laughing at me, but a little bit laughing at me. I'd like to say more laughing with me. Because when it came out in 1981, 1982, I was 11, 12 years old, and I saw it with my mother and my grandmother and my younger sister. And they just, you know, were puddles at the end of this movie. Oh, you know, DT photo and everything. And shut up, shut up, come on, you're embarrassing me. Well, maybe it was my weakened, febrile, fevered state. Every time I saw that moment home, I'm right here. I was a puddle this past week. You know, sometimes when you're sick, you're at your most well. Who knows? Maybe I was. But actually, I thought about that 
Actually, uh, E.T. is not Steven Spielberg's best sci-fi alien life form movie. It's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I had not seen for years. And if we do spiritual cinema at the Colonial Theater again next year, I think it'll be one of the movies that we show. Because really what Close Encounters is all about is about the existence of loneliness and the quest for real intimacy in our universe. Because I am a complete agnostic about any alien life forms or UFOs or anything like that. But you can strip all that stuff out of the movie. Strip away the sci-fi and the story of Close Encounters of the Third Kind is clear. The movie is really about the kind of accountability, availability, and vulnerability we need if we are going to witness to the extraordinary depth and nature of this life. See, because what happens in the movie is just a few people see how mysterious, how meaningful, how remarkable reality really is. And it sets them apart. And they refuse to go back to sleep. I think that invitation is for all of us, not just the chosen few. There are people who are visited by presence in close encounters of the third, mo- of the third kind. And because they have experienced presence, they vow to become presence themselves. The most emotional scene in this movie, and it's terrifying. I'm sure it's much more terrifying for those of you who are parents, if you have seen it, is that scene where the mom and the son are parted right at the beginning of the movie. Now, of course, the aliens ultimately know don't mean any harm. And ultimately, there's reunion. But it is so scary, that moment when they are separated. For all of us, there is so much in this life that can make us come apart. What makes the possibility of reunion a real possibility is presence. We know at some point we're all going to be taken apart by stress, by anger, by pain. But if we can come back together, we can realize that the word directly related to companion is, of course, compassion. And in compassion, we are literally sharing the depth and the reality of another person's life and knowing that we are not alone. So last spring, when Kathy Ellis, some of you I know don't know Kathy, Kathy was working here as our first director of leadership and spiritual development. It was uh, one of those weeks that you have in ministry when there's just a call sort of every day. Someone is sick or someone's ill or someone's in the hospital and Kathy was great at absolutely helping me with that before she moved on to take the position where she's now serving. We started to get a sense, you know, this community is continuing to grow. We're going to two services in the fall. And there's still only going to be one of me. But it wasn't just about the scarcity of my position that had us start to ask a different question. One of the things that when you're a minister is a great blessing is having the opportunity to be there. To be there if you need me. To be a presence for another person when they are struggling or suffering. So we knew that as Wellspring continued to grow, I did not want to hog the ministry ball. I didn't want to say, I'm the only person or presence who can help people in some of these times when they're in the hospital, some of these times when they're sick or lonely or shut out or feeling shut in. And so we had the opportunity to invite some members of this community over the summer to be part of a new group that we're calling the Compassionate Listeners Ministry. I'm going to ask a couple of these folks to stand, those of you who are here. Marianne and Garvey, would you stand? 
Actually, most of our compassionate listeners were here at the 9 a.m. service. <laughs> so you can see the rest of their names here. Now, let me tell you who these folks are not before I tell you who they are. They are not therapists in training. They are not there to fix you. Just as, frankly, I'm not here to fix you either. What they, these names, these folks are here to do is to be called upon by us when and in those moments when the chute opens up and we drop down. In those moments when sickness hurts us, in those moments when loneliness makes us feel as if we are completely set apart, in those times we want to be prepared for another one of those weeks so that we can say, we have some people, if you want to have someone to talk to, who are there if you need us and if you need them. So I'd like to thank you both. I'd like to thank all these names. MC. By the way, obviously these are not the only compassionate listeners in our community. If you have interest in this ministry, and let me say it is not a ministry that comes with light expectations. There is training and follow-up and follow-through. If you're interested in this, Come and talk to me after the service or send me an email. We'll talk about how to get involved, how to share the meaning of this ministry. So this week I had more than my share of chicken soup. I'd like to close with a chicken soup for the soul kind of story. It's one of my favorite ones about the meaning of life and spiritual community when we really are there for each other and experience that kind of presence that can surprise us and change us and call us into the fullness of our being and the fullness of our own presence. It's a story that comes from a guy named Fred Craddock who taught for many, many decades, many years at Candler School of Theology in Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, this particular story, Fred Craddock was traveling with his wife at some place like the Pig and Whistle, some place out of the way in Tennessee, some little kind of joint. And he was sitting there for dinner one night, and as he and his wife were about to start eating, he saw this man sort of going from table to table, sort of glad-handing everyone, greeting everyone, sort of a silver fox kind of guy, beautiful, great gray mane of hair. It looked like he had just known everyone there. And Fred Craddock was thinking, please find another table. I just want to have a quiet meal here, me and my wife. But inevitably, this silver fox found his way over, greeted them, and started to engage them in small talk. He said, well, what do you do for a living? And Fred Crowder thought to himself, well, I'm going to pull out a 50-cent word right here that maybe he won't understand, and maybe he'll move on. I teach homiletics for a living. Ah, you teach preachers how to preach. Damn. <laughs> found out. He was a homileticist. And what's more... This silver fox said, boy, do I have a story about preachers for you. And with that, he turned the chair around, sat side saddle on it, and said, this is my story about preachers. And Frank Craddock inwardly groaned and said, okay, can we get this over with quickly? And the old man started to tell the story. He said, I was born about 50 miles from here, just on the other side of this mountain range. And he said, when I grew up, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for a lot of us. We were very poor. It was a very small town, very isolated. But especially, it wasn't very easy for me. See, because I, I grew up without a father. And in a small town where everyone knows your business, they had a word for people like me. 
I was the bastard. Wherever I knew, I always knew people were asking the question. I mean, there were always eyes on me. People were always saying, who's his father? Who's his daddy? I would go into town to do chores for my mother on Saturday, and I could feel all the eyes of all the people along Main Street asking the question, boring into me, asking me the question, who's his father? Who is that bastard's father? Whenever I had the opportunity to be in public, I got out of there as quickly as I could because it was so difficult growing up. One of the few places, though, that I did feel comfortable was we had this young minister come to the church in town, and I would go and I would hear these sermons that he would give, and I'd sort of feel better about myself. But what I would do, I was going right before the sermon was about to be preached, and I'd leave immediately after so no one could see me in church, and no one could say, look, here is that bastard here in church. But one day, I don't know, I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention. And the final hymn got up, and they were singing it, and I found that my exit was blocked. And I'd have to leave with the mass of other people who were leaving church at the same time. And I thought I could see an exit off there to the side. Maybe I could get out unnoticed. I could get out without everyone's eyes on me like they were wherever I went. And I was just about to the exit and I felt this hand clamp down. Clamp down on my shoulder. And I looked around. And I saw it was the minister staring down at me. With eyes of a steely gaze looking right through me. And he said, Whose boy are you? And inwardly I groaned. Another place where I wouldn't be safe. Another place where I wouldn't be welcome. Another place, even in church, where I was going to be the bastard. And with his hand still on my shoulder, he looked me in the eye still and said, Whose boy are you? And he cracked his face into a wide grin. And said, I see it. I see the family resemblance. He took his hand off my shoulder. He said, you are a child of God. I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. Now go and claim your inheritance. And the old man back at the table was silent. He said, those are the most important words anyone has ever said to me. So that's my story about preachers. I thank you for your time. You got up to leave. And at this point, Fred Craddock was really listening. He was not bemoaning the fact that his dinner had been interrupted. He said, uh, excuse me, sir, we, we didn't get your name. And he said, my name is Ben Hooper. And Fred Craddock turned to his wife and said, I remember my dad telling me about a man who didn't have a father who the people of Tennessee elected twice as their governor. His name was Ben Hooper. Now, there may be a little bit of myth in that story. That doesn't matter. Most important words spoken. The kind of presence that calls forth another person's full presence. Who are we? Well, I hope first and foremost that you're right here, right now, and that when you leave here, you'll be there then too. And wherever you go, there you are. 
and I believe as well, that in many different ways, ultimately we are all children of God. Ultimately, we all have a wonderful inheritance. For me, that inheritance is the full being and the full blessing of this life. I invite each of you to be where you are, to be who you are, to know full presence, and to know that you are loved. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O oh, great name that we know in the deepest presence, in the deepest knowledge of what cannot be severed, and of a tie that cannot be undone. May we be, may we breathe, may we know to the core of our being the sacred depths of our lives and the truth about each and every one of us. That we are invited in, that we are called to care. Once the invitation has extended our way, we can decline, but I hope that each of us accepts. And knowing that this acceptance comes with expectations. For just as we have been welcomed, now it is ours in turn to welcome and to reach out and to reach deeper and to be the kind of presence that is there. Not a ghost, but a spirit. The spirit originally of this life. The kind of spirit that our world desperately needs. Amen.